morning, everyone. You guys ready to dig into the nectar of the word this morning? Right on. Okay, I'll wait. Let the best of you. Good. All right, we're going to continue in our worship. We're going to dig into the Word of God this morning. Make sure everybody publicly hears and knows that for us, this is fundamentally the most important part of the service. Um, we're going to continue in our series in First John, and um, I'm going to read the First John chapter four, verses ten through sixteen. Forgive me for not having them up. Um, I will read this, and then we're going to go right into the questions and dig in. So I'm going to start at verse 10. John writing this letter, 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Very qualifying verse there. 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we beheld, and we have beheld, and bear witness that, here's, here it is, church, verse 14. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Case closed. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. There's that mutual abiding. And verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So let's dig into this text. So you see some questions up there. You've just read the text. Let me draw you into it. Is there anyone in your life right now that inspires you to love others? I want you to think through these questions this morning. Who are the people that the Lord has placed into your life to love? Who are those people? Do you find that at times it is hard to do? Boy, you got quiet already, Professor. So which do you find to be easier, to love people or to hate them? You see, part of our growing and maturing in the Lord, church, it involves you and I learning to trust the Lord and that he knows what he's doing in our lives and that he will use personal hardships and difficulties to mold you and I into the image of his son. So we can learn to love just like Jesus did and still does. He's going to put people in our lives to really press us. He's going to use personal hardships. And that's part of that molding and sculpting us to 
be into the image of his son. Now, some people may say, oh, wait a minute now. Sacrifice my money? Sacrifice my precious time? Sacrifice my desires? God, listen, I have dreams and goals and things I want to do to bring satisfaction to myself. There are times that we all feel that way a lot. God, listen, I really don't have time to invest in other people because, see, God, I like my plan for my life much better than your plan for my life. But, church, to truly, truly love someone, here's the rub. God may call you and I to put those things, those dreams and aspirations aside in order for you and I to learn how to love. Because agape love is an act of the will. It's sacrificial. And it is often in the context of relationships that the real you and I get exposed. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. (laughs) You see, we really, you know, especially in the context of marriage and deep relationships, you know, we really find out what we really love in those relationships. And sometimes we may not like what we see. So let's take a moment and review. I'm just going to review a little bit of what we learned last week. Slide two, Cindy. So that way we can really dig into this. I'm not going to go as deep as I did before, but I want to go over it. So you see here, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for us. And so you got your agape, your love, right? And there's agape men. But that he loved us and sent his son. And there's your halasman. There's your propitiation. Right there in the text. For our sins. Okay? Slide three. So here's the question. Based on that, how did you and I show God that we loved him this week? Now you just read, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. So how did you and I show God that we really loved him this week? I want you to think that through. How does God tell us to show him that we truly love him? Well, you have your scriptures, church. Slide four. What does it say here? This is Jesus. If you, there's that word, agape toy. If you love me, here's the entolos, you will keep my commandments. If, is a conditional clause, if you agape toy. By the way, that word love there, and you've learned this before, is not phileo or astorgia or eros. It's the strongest word for love, agape toy. If you are unconditionally telling me you are committed to me, A way that you can show me that you love me is that you will keep my commandments. And the bottom verse, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now look at the rest of the text. My father will agape toy him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. That should bring comfort to all of us. So the real question should never be putting God on trial and saying, you know, does God really love me at all? If God loved me, why? Why, why, why? 
So, church, is there any evidence in my life and your life that demonstrates to God as well as to other people that we really do, in fact, love the Christ? Is there evidence in our life? If we were put on trial, would there be any evidence to show people, hey, that person really does love Jesus? See, if any person wishes to know how God the Father demonstrated his unconditional love, he or she only needs to look at the fact that God the Father sent his one and only unique monogamous son into the world so that we could have eternal life. This love, church, now this is important, this part. This love was not a response from man's love towards him, but this love was initiated by God himself. See, his love for you and I was never predicated on our love for him. In our last time together, we looked at that word propitiation. Go to slide five. This, if you have a personal Bible, take verses 25, 26, 27, 28, circle them, put a big heart around them. That's the heart of the gospel right there. This verse right here. And here we go. Whom God displayed publicly, right, as a, here's that word again. There's your hilasterion or holosmon, propitiated by faith, by his blood, to show, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. There's your harmartia or harmatane. There's your sins, missing the mark, falling short right there. So there you go. There it is in the text. Whom God displayed publicly as the halasmas, the propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, in our last time together, I'm just going to bridge this down real short. We learned one very important fact. God is a God of love, but he's also a righteous and just God. And God made it clear that justice must be satisfied. God's justice must be satisfied. We learn that it is the job of a judge to make sure the judgment is pronounced, that judgment is done. So then, what do we learn? The Father, in His love, satisfies His justice with a sacrifice, a propitiation. Church, this is a sacrifice that we learn that is powerful and holy enough to avert the Father's wrath against all of mankind. The God that you and I have offended and sinned against has himself provided you and I with the way that our sins and our offenses could be dealt with. His anger and his wrath against sin and the sinner has been satisfied. It's been appeased, averted, covered. So now, God the Father can now reconcile man to himself. The very sacrifice that he demanded, he provided for you and for me. How was Jesus Christ the propitiatory sacrifice? The text answered it. In his blood through faith. Here's another thing that we need to be thinking about. When you and I think about the blood and the cross, it is not the piece of jewelry. It is not some very sterile, fancy, pretty little cross that you see. We need to understand something here. This was capital punishment. This was bloody, 
stenchy, smelly. You know, people will wear crosses, jewelry, and so forth, but we need to understand something. Imagine if you were living 2,000 years ago and you were walking around with a nice, pretty piece of a cross around your neck. What kind of message do you think that they would be thinking about us? How about this? If we were living today where they use uh, lethal injection or they, they use uh, an electric chair or anything like that, if we were wearing that around our neck, people would be like, have you lost your mind? We need to understand something. When we think about the blood and the cross, there, there's a picture that should be coming to our minds. We should come to see that our sin is so terrible and foul and vile that absolutely nothing could deal with it except the crimson blood of Christ. That is what happened at the cross, church. The cross makes you and I see ourselves as the very guilty sinners we are. We are guilty. We have fallen short. We have broken God's law. This is also why it is such an offense to people that are unsaved and still dead in their sins. The cross, the shed blood, is showing us sin as it really is. And we need to always remember that everything that God does must be just, righteous, and holy. Why? Because God is true to his own character, church. So God's way of forgiving our sins by the blood of his son, Jesus the Christ, is just because God has now punished sin. Sin deserved punishment. God made it clear in his word that he would punish sin, and the punishment would mean death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So God's way of forgiveness is to deal with the sin and to give it the punishment that it deserves. And church, that is exactly what the Christ did on that cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. That is what we're reading in the text right there. He is our propitiatory sacrifice. There it is in the original language. It was penned in right there. This is not conjecture. It's not made up. We are drawing out of the text, expository, what the Bible says. God publicly displayed Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice in his blood through faith. There it is for us. There's the word of God. So as God forgives our sins by the blood of his only son, he is declaring his own righteousness and justice. Justice has been satisfied. And the blood is the final proof of the fact that death has been accomplished. It was a life that was given up for you and for me. So Jesus by giving up his sinless life for you and I sacrificially has annulled the power of sin that has separated us from the Father. The Father will never hold against us any of our sins, listen, which you and I will struggle with for the rest of our lives because we still live in this sinful body. And there is only, only one way that you or I or anybody can be made right with God, and that is by coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sacrifice. Church, listen, there are no other ways. There's a lot of religions out there that want to make us think that, oh, there's many other ways to God. No, this is the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. 
So even though our consciousness will accuse us of having grievously sinned against all of God's commands, even though our hearts are inclined towards evil, wanting things our own way, nevertheless, without you and I ever deserving it at all, God, out of his sheer grace, grants salvation to you and I through Christ. So we're never going to be able to earn it. We're never going to be able to be good enough. And church, as a result of this, those of us who seek forgiveness of our sins and confession and cleansing, we need to approach the Father through Christ. That is the word of God. Slide six, Cindy. Let's move on. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loved us, we also ought to one another. So, as you look at the questions on there, ask yourself this honest question. Be, be true with God and yourself this morning. Does God's love inspire you and I to love others? How, how can you and I, how can we make God's love visible to other people? If we are to be honest with ourselves this morning, this command can seem pretty tough. Slide seven. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I loved you. Do you notice it's a command? God's not saying, hey, you know, if you feel like it, you know, if you feel like it, go ahead. If you're having a good day, go for it. It doesn't say that. This is a command that we agape toy one another, just as he has agape toyed us. In John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, the one laid down his life for his friends. Now think with me for a moment, church. If God so loved you and I, even when you and I sin against him, oppose him, ignore him, disobey him, day after day after day, we do that. We sin in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, and motives every day. We even sin in our prayers. This verse should make it very clear that there is no one we shouldn't love. If our Heavenly Father went to such great lengths by sending His Son into the world to die for us, to pay our sin debt in full, which is the ultimate expression of His love for us, shouldn't we go to the same lengths to love one another? I want you to notice there in that, in that verse, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. God doesn't put words in the Bible by accident. That word ought is an important word there. The Greek word is ophileo. It means to owe, to be under an obligation, to be bound. If Beloved, if God so loved, we are obligated, we are bound. It's like a debt owed that we should be loving one another. That's the original Greek word that God is using in the text. Church, we are duty-bound and obligated to be living sacrifices for God by loving each other without putting terms and conditions on it. I'll love you if you give this for me. I'll love you if you take care of that for me. Uh, we'll live together and not get married, and I'm, I'm, you know, as long as we take care of ourselves, you know, this, that, and the other. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches, church. It's not what it teaches. We are to 
continually be there for each other and to sacrifice for each other. Slide 8. Look at what the Life Application Bible says. John isn't telling us how many people to love, but how much to love the people we already know. Our job is to faithfully love the people God has given to us, whether there are two or 200 of them. If God sees we are ready to love others, he will bring them to us. No matter how shy we are, we don't need to be afraid of the love commandment. God provides us the strength to do what he asks. Slide 9. How about what Paul, when he's writing to the church of Galatia, called on the foolish Galatians? This is what he said. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. This is another verse you can circle and highlight. But Christ lives in me. The life which I now presently live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You have the gospel. Boom! Right there, church. You have this, uh, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, this is kind of an allusion to Romans 6, when we talk about being buried in baptism and so forth. So basically, what, what Paul is saying here is, you know, obviously he didn't get crucified on the cross right next to Christ. So what he's alluding to here is, you know, I have been crucified with Christ. So, you know, he's come to saving faith. And what happens is, Christ's death has now become his death. And Christ's death has now become your death. You need to understand that. He died in your place. We call it the law of substitution. He was the substitutionary sacrifice. So Paul can say this and be accurate in saying, I have been crucified with Christ. My old life of being dead in my sins is done. And it's no, I, I, it's no longer I who live, but Jesus is indwelling me. He's living in me. And as a result of Jesus living in me, he's saying, listen, this life which I now live while I'm still here on earth in the flesh... I can live it out by faith in the Son of God, that's Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Does that affect the way that you talk to people? Does that affect the way you interact with people? Do they see that Christ is living in you? Do they see that you actually love people? So how then did Jesus love us? He laid down his life for us. So it seems from the scriptures, church, that the only way I can genuinely love others as Christ did is that my life has to be crucified with Christ. What does that mean, church? See, Paul, again, as I said, is speaking of this union. See, as I said, Jesus represented you and I in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's almost a picture of baptism when you're standing here. It's like you're on the cross when you go down under the water. There's your burial when you come out up out of the water represents your new way of life it is christ that paid for our sins with his life to guarantee our salvation do you believe that so jesus permanently indwells inside you and i through god the holy spirit and it's from that union of the god the holy spirit indwelling you that you can draw your strength to have the courage to love people even when you deem them unlovable 
So then, what does this mean? The self-righteous, self-centered, prideful, you and I are to be dead. That's it. Being in union with Christ is to have ended ourselves being the ones that sit on the throne of our heart. Christ needs to be sitting there. That is his place. That is not our place. So then, as a result of this, you and I are to yield. We are to give that throne seat in our hearts to Jesus since the Bible says Christ lives in me. Church, if if Christ loved you and I enough to give up his life for us, which is this ultimate expression of his love, then he loves us enough to live out his life in and through us. That should be awesome. That should excite you. He can live out his life through you. You become his hands and feet. He owns your mouth. So how then can you and I make this love visible to others so they can see a living Christ? It shows up in the daily, everyday actions and attitudes that you and I have towards other people. Am I willing to lay aside my own desires? Am I able to put them aside for the welfare of others? Loving others, church, it's a sign and is evidence that we are walking in the light just as Jesus walked. Loving others also displays to others that we aren't the same people we used to be anymore. We're living a renewed life. Here's the question. Are we still practicing the same sinful habits we practiced as a daily way of life before we got saved. What was your life like before you got saved? What were those things that you used to do as a daily practice that dishonored God? Are they still showing up as a regular way of practicing life here when you say you got saved? That's a tough question. Slide 10. Verse 12. 1 John 4, 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides, mene, God continually abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, let me read that again. No one has seen God at any time. If, there's your clause, if we love one another, God's love or God abides in us. That's, by the way, that's in the present. That's as a continual. God is continually abiding in you. And his love is being perfected in you. I want to tease this apart. No one has seen God at any time. The idea here is that no person has ever seen God in his complete unveiled essence or majesty. Because if you did, you would just be, you would just evaporate. You would just turn into dust. So he's, what he's alluding to here is no one has ever seen God in his complete unveiled essence or majesty. Also, look at the bottom of the screen there, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he's explained him or he's revealed him. Now, it's very interesting in those two verses there, 1 John 4.12 and in John 1.18, you see the word seen. No one's seen God at any time. So, in verse John 1.18, the Greek word used there is the word horeo, 
it, it, the idea here is seeing with the naked eye. Just like you're seeing me right now. The word seen that is used in 1 John, our main text, is the word tithete. So what is, what is important about that? Well, that's where you guys get your English word theater from. See, you know Greek and you didn't even know it. Isn't that exciting? Whenever you use the word theater, tethete, you know the word. So the word theater, actually as is used here, the way they used it, is this careful observation or this close scrutiny. Close scrutiny. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Some may argue people in the Old Testament saw God, slide 11. They're going to bring up verses like uh, Isaiah 6.1. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And again, John is trying to teach us here that he's saying, listen, no one has seen God the Father in his unveiled essence. In Exodus 33.20, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. So again, John, along with the scriptures, are very clear that we're not, nobody's seen God just in his unveiled essence, just the way he is. There's been theophanies that we've seen in scripture, which I'm not going to go into today. But I just want to make it clear that what he's talking about here is, is no one has seen God in his unveiled essence. But the way people can see Christ abiding in us is our love. And the Greek word for perfect there is teleo, which means this, this molding, shaping. This, this is our, our growing up, maturing. That's kind of the idea of that word there. So scripture makes it clear that no mortal living man has ever seen the Father in his full unveiled essence. So there are places in scripture I know where God allowed people to see glimpses where he's covered them. There's theophanies, but never in his full display. So slide 12. Let me move on. If we love one another, God abides or remains in us. He continually dwells in us. Now, this, this, there's something else that you need to understand here if you're truly born again. This also has the flavor of something that I think that we need to kind of remember. The idea here in the text is, is this, that God has this permanent relationship with his children. As God was and is present with his son, we need to understand that he is now present with believers. Here's the thing. If you are truly born again, do you know you're carrying God, the Holy Spirit, with you wherever you go? What do you think about that? If, if you are truly born again, it is not just you inside there. It's just not your own little world here. Christ is there through God, the Holy Spirit, permanently indwelling you. Throughout the Greek, when the word mene is used, one of the things that's interesting is there's this permanence. God does not sit there and say, well, the lease is over. I'm leaving you now. Goodbye. It doesn't work that way. This, he's permanently housed in you. So you take him with you wherever you go. This is a conditional statement. Since Jesus is no longer visibly present for us to see him, people will not see God's love unless those who are true, who are true believers, followers of Christ, love each other. That's one of the ways people can see Christ alive in us. Here's some questions on slide 12. Do we do that? Do we really love each other? 
Westcott says, It is through man that the love of God finds its fulfillment on earth. Think with me, church. We're almost done. God loves his son with a perfect love. God loves his son with a perfect love. When a person comes to saving faith in Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, indwells the person. Here's something else. God plants in that person his divine nature in that person. And he gives that person a new spiritual life. Has that happened for you? Do you have a new spiritual life? If God, the Holy Spirit, is indwelling you, he's planted his divine nature in you, and he's given you a new spiritual life. And church, we know God by his love for us. So if we love God, we then accept what God the Father has done for us through his Son, Jesus the Christ. Look how he finishes slide 13, verse 12. His love is perfected in us. And again, I taught you that's the Greek word tilio. It means to bring to completion, full grown, accomplished. So how do we rivet all of this together this morning? How do we bring this in together? The true and living God, who no one can see and live, now reveals himself through the visible lives of his children, his followers, those who have come to a saving faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and believe in him. That is how this all comes around He's planted himself in you if you're a believer. So when you and I truly love each other, God's love becomes perfected or accomplished in us. And look how he ties us together. Slide 13, verse 13 as well. So John is saying, listen, by this we know. This is how we know that you and I continually abide in him and he's continually abiding in us because he's given us the spirit. You don't earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't bargain for it. He gave it to you. Can you imagine the very God that spoke the universe into existence? Now, I want you to try to wrap your head around this because it's mind-boggling for me. The very God that spoke the world into existence is the very same God indwelling you, if you're a believer, right now. Wrap that around your head. We, we, we come across as these weak, frail, little, oh no, and yet the very God that spoke the world into existence, ex nihilio, I don't know what's going on with this mic, is the very same God living inside you. God indwells his believers in the person, not a force, the Holy Spirit is a person in you. The love that comes from God, the unconditional agape love he has for you and I, reaches perfection or is accomplished in our love for each other. That's the word teleo. Church, this is clearly in the text what God the Father wants. When you and I love others this way, we are making Christ visible 
to the people he brings into our lives. So then this begs the question, how do we know that he resides in us and we in him? He answered the question because he's given us his spirit. You know, when you're in the scriptures reading it, I remember reading the Bible before I was saved, and I remember reading the Bible now. And when I'm reading the Bible now, it's like a present, ongoing, live conversation. When I read the Bible before I was saved, it did nothing. It didn't affect me. When the Holy Spirit indwelt me, because he never works independently from his word, when I read the Bible, I'm, I'm literally, God is literally talking to me through his word. That's how he speaks to me through his word. That's how he speaks to us today through his word. The word of God is the final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice. The word of God is God's word to you and I. And no portion of scripture is is of anyone's own private interpretation. For holy men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God put into the scriptures what he wanted to say. And if Jesus was sitting right there in a chair right now in bodily form, everything he'd want to say, he said to you in his word. When you take away the sufficiency of Scripture, you start really dealing with, so what part of the Bible is right, what part of the Bible is wrong? Either it's all God's Word and God is always right, or it's not. And as far as I'm concerned, His Word is the final authority of all matters of life, faith, and practice in this church and our lives. Slide 14. More proof text to encourage you. The Spirit Himself by the way, doesn't say this force, doesn't say the wind, the pneuma takas, the spirit himself, does something, testifies with our spirit that we are the technos, the children of God. Do you see that? The spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, that person himself testifies to your spirit whether or not you're his child. That should fire you up if you're saved. So then we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to our spirit. Slide 14 also, 1 John 3, 24. The one who keeps his commandments, literally in the Greek, continually abides in him and he in him. There's that mutual abiding. We know by this that he abides in us. And again, capital S, by the Holy Spirit who he gave us. Look what John's telling us here. The one who keeps his commandment abides. Church, the one who obeys the Lord and keeps his commandments enjoys this ongoing fellowship whereby you abide, meaning you remain in close fellowship with the Father and he through the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. That word abide really just cements this ongoing permanent relationship between the child of God and child of Father. Here's something else that comes to my mind. I hear people say, well, God doesn't talk to me, Pastor Jack. I'm still listening for that still small voice, Pastor Jack. Just open your Bible and start reading. He's talking. I don't understand why people have such a hard time if you open up the scriptures and begin reading the word of God. He's speaking to you. And uh, why do I want to hear his voice out loud? Then read the Bible out loud. 
Read it out loud. The, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. He's speaking to us because He's given us the Spirit. Just start reading it out loud if you want to hear God speak audibly. He owns your voice box. He gave it to you. He gave you the pharynx. Open up your scriptures. The more that you close your Bible and don't listen to Him, the more other systems of wisdom are going to start abiding for your attention to start yanking you away to say, well, maybe there's another way or maybe this or that. That's hogwash, church. That's just not the truth. The person of the Holy Spirit is the very source from which the certainty and confidence of your relationship with Him comes. That's really important that you never forget that. Start opening up your Bible. It's not a coffee table book. You don't have to watch TV for 18 hours a week and give God 30 minutes of that. Open up your scriptures. Slide 15. I'm almost done. We also have the assurance of when we keep his commandments. We've read that, right? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him, make our abode with him. We have the assurance that we keep his word. We demonstrate to him that we love him. We also see that the Father will love us and will reside and permanently resign with us. Now, as we reflect, and I'm trying to wind this down for you now, as we reflect on these truths we've been engaging in the scriptures, I want to ask you an honest question this morning. Does this at all cause you and I to think about how you and I behave around the people that God brings into our life? I want to ask you that again. I really want you to engage the text. I'm insignificant. Engage the text. And the question is, does this cause you and I to at all think about how we behave around the people that God brings in our life? Really, when God brings people in your life, who's showing up? The saved you or the unsaved you? Who's showing up? Who's being put on display? If you're out living the way you used to live before you got saved, you know, sucking down the joints in the pot to the point of no return, getting intoxicated, sleeping with people you're not married to, and you're doing all those things, you better start questioning whether or not you're saved. If the Holy Spirit's indwelling you, you should be grieved over that behavior. Think about it for a moment. Holy God permanently indwelling you who's the creator of the universe permanently residing in you. Slide 16. And we're just about done. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It doesn't say he sent Buddha. It doesn't say he sent Charles Taze Russell doesn't say any of that. It says, we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son. He didn't say Confucius or any of those other people. He sent his monogenes, the unique Son of God, to be the Savior of the world. No human mortal man could ever do what the Christ did and has done for you. And then verse 15 of that text, so whoever homogaleo, Whoever confesses 
that Jesus is the Son of God. God permanently abides in him and he in God. I don't know how that could get any more clearer to any of us. It's right there in the text. You either believe it or you don't. And here, here's the rub. I couldn't believe this until the Holy Spirit effectually called me out of darkness and woke me up spiritually. So when I read this now, I, I believe this. I believe this. I know this is true because the Holy Spirit has testified to me that what I'm reading is the truth. What kind of impression does this make on you when you hear those words? We have seen and we testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, that means to say the same thing, to tell the truth. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God, Manoi, continually abides in that person and that person in God. Slide 17. John, giving you more of his naked eye, Horeo, testimony of what he saw. John, back in 1 John, or John 1, 14, says, and the Lagos, the word that has always existed with the Father from all eternity past. There was never a time when the Word did not exist, the Lagos. The Lagos did something it never did before. Greek word there is genitate, to cause to be. The Word of God, the Lagos, has now become flesh. And that flesh, that's the Christ, dwelt among us, pitched his tent of flesh among us. John is saying, we saw... With our naked eyes, Horeo, we saw his glory. The glory is of the only unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see that, church? The Lagos, the word that has always existed, that's John 1, 1 and 2, with the Father from all eternity past. There's never been a time where God the Son did not exist. Don't let any false prophet tell you differently. That's what that says. If you read John 1... You could read it in the beginning, the word already always existed. Dwelt, skinu, pitched his tent of flesh among us. Saw his glory as of the only begotten. This is the only unique one from the Father. That's the Christ. He's full of grace and truth. And then verse 12 of Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else. No one else. Case closed. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's amazing when you open your Bible, God just, boom, hits us with truth, church. It is very clear that Jesus made a permanent impression in John's heart. You know, when John wrote 1 John, 2 and 3 John, and when he wrote parts of Revelation, do you realize that 90 years had passed? And here's the thing that's really cool about 1 John. 90 years had passed since when he laid eyes on Jesus in bodily form. And it was just as fresh and vibrant and real and life-changing 90 years later. 90 years later. He didn't waver. He saw with his own eyes the only begotten from the Father. He's testified to you what he saw. 
He didn't get millions of dollars in a book deal on this. He just wrote out what he saw. And 90 years later, I'm reading to you, 2,000 years later, that John was still just as affected by that eugelion, that gospel, that Christ, 90 years later. I hope that sinks in. Jesus made a permanent impression on you. Has he made an impermanent impression on your heart and life? We've been reading that John has been sharing with us some important things to think about. If we love one another, God, who no one actually seen, lives in us. Another point, his love is made complete in us. Teleo. Three main points in the text that we cover. If we love each other, God, who no one seen, living in you and I. His love is made complete in you and I. So the result, John tells us here in the text that he and the other disciples have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And if you drop dead, you get killed, you lose your life, and you are not born again, you will not be spending eternity in heaven with the Lord. You will be burning in hell for all eternity. Please understand one thing. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. When you are dead and you draw your last breath, if you are not born again, if your sins have not been washed by the blood, you will spend eternity in hell forever. There's no pardon, no parole. You know, the president can't write a pardon. Oh, let him out. No. It's a forever deal. It is appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. Please understand, there's no second chance. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no backroom deals that you strike with God. Please understand, if you die without Christ... You are going to be, in fact, the Greek uses the word exodraskatos, outer darkness, the lake of fire. It's in the Bible. Read it. We are not playing games. This is not some deal. We are not a country club. This is the church of the living God. Let me finish here. The invisible indwelling. God is revealed among his loving followers so they can see and testify this truth that the Father did indeed send the Son. I want you to notice a couple other things here and I want to wrap this up for you. I want you to notice something about Jesus. His love is patient. He's patient with us. We screw up every day and he's still patient with us. He doesn't say, I'm taking my bag of toys and I'm leaving you. Goodbye forever. He's macrothemeo. He's patient. He's long-suffering with us. Second thing I notice here, his love for you and I is a gift. It's a gift. It's not based on your performance or my performance. He gives it freely as a gift. His love for you and I is not earned by paying wages. You and I could never live a perfect life. We'll never be able to do so while we're still here in the flesh. Romans 7, 15 through the end tells you that in Paul's writings. Something else. Jesus loves weak, ungodly, selfish, sinful enemies. You and I are called to do the same. The scriptures teach us that Jesus gives you and I a life that you and I can give away and yet never lose. You hear me? He gives you and I a life that you can give up and give away sacrificially and yet never lose. 
I believe that the scriptures here teach us that very fact. So genuine, not just mouthing words, genuine confession of Jesus the Christ is a lot more than reciting a creed or a sinner's prayer with our lips. Church, it involves this making us alive, this movement of our soul being moved towards wanting to be with Christ. Let me finish up with verse uh, slide 18. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, the Kyrios, not just the Savior, Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Verse 10 unpacks why. With your mouth, with your heart, you believe, resulting in righteousness. That means that God's righteousness is now there. It's conditional. It's there. With your mouth, you confess, resulting in salvation. Paul says some important things here. Confess with your mouth. What does Paul mean when he says, you know, anybody can go, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Thank you. Bye-bye. No. What is Paul really talking about here when he's talking about hamagleo? You are agreeing with, saying the same thing that is truth. You are declaring. The idea here is that there is this very deep conviction in your heart, your soul. A deep conviction that you truly believe. Why is it important? It's not saying just believe with intellectual knowledge. You see, Paul knows that human beings, all of us, we live out of our heart. Your heart is the steering wheel of your life. Your heart is always behind your behavior because your heart is active. It causes, directs, shapes, and it shepherds your behavior. You do what you do because you think it will give you what you want. And you center your life around doing what you do because you think it's going to give you those things that you want. So Paul knows and Christ knows that your heart is always active and shapes and shepherds your behavior. So we're not just talking about intellectual knowledge. We're talking about a deep conviction. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died on that cross, that bloody, vile cross, shedding his blood, spilling it to pay your sin debt in full? So when you drop dead, you're ushered into glory in his arms instead of burning in hell. Put up slide 19 real quick. Might as well cover this last point, and then we're done. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus says in John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus says it right here so beautifully. And just proves his deity he says I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this do you believe this church we are to have full assurance that God loves us 
This should give us the strength, the assurance to deal with all the trials of life. You're, listen, you're going to have trials. It's, it's interesting when we look, the Bible is just so explosive in its explanation. You know, the Greek word used for trials a lot of times is the word thlipsis. And, you know, when they used to separate the wheat from the chaff, they had the, this, this, this device that would beat the wheat, and just beat it, beat it, and press it into very tight places. So when we think about trials, we, we, we think about being pressed into these very uncomfortable, tight places in our life. And we all have these tight, uncomfortable places that we really don't want to be. And it's in those places when we're being pressed and shaken and beaten that God can do some of his greatest work in our lives. We don't like it. You know, we have a headache. We take our Tylenol or Advil, right? We don't like pain. But unfortunately, pain is a gift from God because it reveals something's wrong. Pain reveals something is wrong. And God uses that to try to move you to complete dependence on Him. That if there's pain in your life and trials, He's got a purpose and plan. Listen, God is not an old man with a beard and hearing aids and cataract surgery that is needed, that He's just caught off guard. God knew you were going to be born when, how, who your parents would be. He knew all those things gazillions of years before He ever invented planet Earth. You could trust Him that when those trials are gone, instead of turning to world system, turn to Christ, turn to his word and say, Lord, speak to me. David wrote the Psalms. When you're in the book of Psalms, start with chapter one, start somewhere, grab a highlighter. And all the words or sentences that are in the verses you're reading, highlight those. Highlight those verses with the highlighter. Then go back and just read the highlighted portions and let God speak to you. Let him work through you. Another way you know you're saved is he's going to give you a peace in your heart to let you know that, you know what, I got your back. And we have have to stop thinking that this is it. You know, we're all going to die. Someday we're going to be dead. Unless the rapture comes and he calls us home before then, we're going to die. And we're going to stand before God. And that judgment's either going to be covered by the blood at that beam of seat, or you're going to pay for it, and you're going to pay for it, and it's not going to be good. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word gives life. We thank you that your word is truth replacing lies. Lord, we know that you are worthy and we are not. Lord, I ask you to help us. Help us to turn to you when things get really uncomfortable, when things become very painful and hurtful, and our hearts are wounded beyond belief. That you still got us, Lord that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that you are with us wherever we go. You tell us that in your word. Lord, if there are people that have not surrendered their life to you, I pray this morning that now would be the time that they have placed their faith and trust in you alone. I pray, Lord, that those that you've called out of darkness, that your word ministers to them and speaks to them. And we ask this in the name above all names. In Jesus' name, amen. We close it with a song? All right. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Just light up for the food and um, let's have a meal together.